Let's bow our heads and pray if we may. Almighty God, in the hearing of your word this morning, grant that we in our generation may see your salvation. Amen. Well, let me add my own good morning to uh, Mark's. My name's Alan Strange. I'm the rector here at Holy Trinity. If you go to St. Peter's Street at the moment outside the City Hall in Norwich, you will find signs saying road closed. The war memorial is being worked on. Now, if the Queen were to make another official visit to Norwich and have lunch, as she did last time, at City Hall, you can bet that that road would be open again pretty quickly. In the next couple of weeks, I gather there's going to be an announcement about the Northern Distributor Road around Norwich. There will be all kinds of fuss as this or that person understandably complains that it's going to cut through the bottom of their garden. There was no such fuss in the ancient world. No planning controls to worry about. When royalty wanted to travel, roads got built and everything else got flattened. Would you please pick up your Bibles and turn to page 1029. You'll find the Bibles where you found the cream service books earlier in the chairs in front of you or if you're on the front row in the, uh, under your seat. If you're upstairs at the end of the row. And first of all, I want to uh, direct our attention to that uh, bit that appears in quotations in the second column. It's verses, uh, part of verse 4 through to verse 6 of chapter 3. And the bit that you have there in quotes is a quotation from the prophet Isaiah. And the language in that quotation draws on the way in which royalty processed through their empires in those days. When an emperor wanted to travel, and they didn't do it very much, a triumphal way would be established. Not one that worried about tree preservation orders, but just went through. Not that I'm bitter at all about tree preservation orders, you understand. <laughs> it was a signal of the emperor's power that everything was simply flattened out and straightened for him. When everything natural is curved and crooked, it is a sign of great power to be able to simply strengthen it, straighten it out. And if anyone had the right to have his roads flattened and straightened, it was the Roman emperor Tiberius. Tiberius, at this point, uh, was insane and involved in a reign of terror. These names that begin our chapter 3 are all going to be important in the story. Well, not quite all of them, most of them. Herod is the one who will put John the Baptist in prison. He'd built his new capital on a burial ground, an unclean place for the Jews, and therefore he'd blasphemed the faith. His brother Philip more followed the ways of the Greeks than of the Jews. Annas and Caiaphas, the priests, will oppose the Christ when he comes, and Pilate will condemn him to death. These, at the beginning of chapter 3, are the power figures. For generations, the Jews have had to put up with rulers concerned for everyone else except them. 
And since the Jews came back from exile a few hundred years before, from exile in the east, they'd lived under more or less continuous occupation. This wasn't part of the deal as far as they were concerned. And if something was wrong, if they had this sense of occupation, some were saying it was their own fault. Their sense of needing to be in a new relationship with God met John the Baptist, who himself had a sense of the changing times. This was the hinge point of the eras. What God had promised was coming to pass. And John went out to the Jordan River, and we focus on the river and the baptism, but let's also remember that the Jordan was the place where the Jews first claimed their land in their own ancient history. Baptism was well known at that time, but not in the way that it's used now. Baptism was a way in which a Gentile, a non-Jew, could get as close as it was possible to becoming a Jew. And John was reworking it. He started offering baptism to the Jews themselves, as though their own pride and failures had so corrupted their inheritance that they themselves had to be treated as non-Jews looking for a way back to God. And he speaks of this road. Luke is quoting Isaiah the prophet. Luke's writing this. Now, let's get get this clear. Imagine this is the exile. Um, Which way do you... You probably read that way. So, uh, John the Baptist is, is uh, ministering in a time, and Luke is talking uh, about a time before the exile when Isaiah, the prophet, looked forward to and expected the exile. So that's the kind of movement. It's quite complicated. Luke is looking way back to Isaiah, who was himself looking forward, not in the sense of uh, happy looking forward, but just expecting the exile and the return from exile. Isaiah puts himself in a situation that seems quite impossible. Not only will the people return from the east, but God will be with them, returning in triumph to the land of promise. The Lord has been with his people in their exile, according to all the prophets, and now, according to Isaiah, as he looks forward, the Lord is coming from the east in the manner of a mighty emperor. He comes in triumph. The road is built for him and in blessing, and everyone will see that it is he who is glorious. So imagine if you hear those words, and you're living now in the time of John the Baptist. These words are a deep pain. All this had been promised, but it hadn't happened. Where was God's power and might against the Tiberiuses and the Pilots and the Herods and the corrupt priests? And so Luke speaks, And he gives his own twist of meaning to the prophecy from Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert. That's where John has gone. Prepare the way for the Lord. Later in Luke's writings, we'll learn that the way was the first name for the followers of Jesus Christ. So there's almost like a pun, prepare the way for the Lord. That's uh, That's what Isaiah wrote, but Luke is hearing that other meaning. Prepare the way for the Lord. That's a title that's already been given earlier in Luke's gospel to Jesus. 
And then at the end, all mankind will see God's salvation. Salvation, rescue, has been the theme in the announcement to the shepherds, which we've just heard in Luke's Gospel, uh, the song of Zechariah, which we've just heard in, John's go- in Luke's Gospel, and in the song of Simeon, which we've just heard in Luke's Gospel. But there's more to it even than that, this prophecy. The prophecy of Simeon in the temple is about this child that he's destined to to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. The falling and rising. And Luke will again and again pick up this sense of inverting natural order. And he does so here by taking descriptions of something external and making it internal. So in verse 5, every mountain and hill will be made low. Well, if, you, if you've listened to what Luke has said in the earlier chapters, you hear made low. Well, that's about humility. It's about repentance. Put yourself in a lowly position and you will be fulfilled, being part of the, you'll be part of the fulfillment of this prophecy. The crooked will be made straight. Peter, in a sermon later on, says, this is a crooked generation. If you're a part of a crooked generation, then if you are baptized for repentance now, you'll see that being made straight. The way Luke arranges things here tells us a great deal about what God is up to. Most obviously, in those early verses, the obvious builders of the road are the powerful and the mighty. Those who are in charge of the public realm, civil, military, religious. And yet the truth is that nothing good is going to come from them. While they're busy in their palaces, the word of God is on the wind speaking in the desert. And so these early verses are a no from God to the ways of public externals. And so in reaction to that, lots of Christians down the years will have gone, uh, uh, on the other hand, to John in the desert, baptizing all these people for repentance, one at a time. It's all very personal. And we might say, well, it is the way of God to move personally and privately, far from the public realm of the bad guys. Something good is going on in the desert, and it's a matter of the private heart, not a matter of public power. And there's some truth in that. What What John was offering was not Christian baptism, as we understand it today, any connection to today and to Oliver is simply incidental. But what he offered was personal, it was individual, and it was in a different world from Jerusalem. And yet, we need a third hand. We can't do too many on the, ha- on the other hands. There's an and yet. It's not the, the great big public thing, but nor is it the purely private Because it's possible that John could have had a a ministry that said, the politicians, the military, they're all corrupt. Never mind them. Come over to the Jordan and learn of God's peace as you return to him. In fact, we'll find out next week with Colin Bearup that that wasn't John's message. But it's worth raising as a possibility because it is what lots of people think that faith in God is all about. It is a break a soul-pleasing break from the rigors of the real world. Here we are, surrounded by thick walls against December weather, 
thick walls drawn aside on a Sunday from our Monday to Friday worlds to think of nice things and how important it is to have a spiritual dimension in life. And yet Luke is careful to frame this chapter in such a way that that is a simply impossible way of looking at it. The quotation from Isaiah is drawn from Isaiah precisely from the world of the mighty and the powerful, none more so than the emperor in his triumph. As of now, says Isaiah, the real triumph belongs to God and the emperor is on borrowed time. Why would Luke go to the trouble of listing all these powerful people if the real action in the desert is in some sense hiding from those realities, avoiding them? Why pick up on the promise that when God comes to act in triumph and to rescue his people, all mankind will see God's salvation? It'll be big, it'll be public, it'll be obvious. So this is not a private spiritual party for the few, but a massive demonstration that God has been faithful and is rescuing his people. As John prepares the way for Jesus, and we often consider the ministry of John the Baptist in this Advent season before Christmas, what he is recognizing about Jesus is that this is not going to be about escaping the mighty and the powerful. It is about overthrowing them. This is Luke, who records Mary, the mother of Jesus, singing, he has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. And that overthrow begins in the desert with John the Baptist. Let's draw some conclusions. Real faith in the one whose story this is, the Lord who is coming, is not a matter for Tiberius, for Pilate, for Herod. It's not a matter of power and public posturing and external observance. Please, God, Oliver never grows up to be one of those who thinks he's godly just because his parents got him done in church. Public show is rendered pathetic by Luke chapter 3. And yet neither is this a purely spiritual event, far away from the public. It is personal, but it is not private. It remains a public witness, this baptism, just as that one was by the banks of Jordan. Like the words they will have said, and we don't know what they would have said precisely, but the words we say in a baptism and the baptism that has been there for all of us. The words we say are a promise about a future. We can fail to live out the words, I turn to Christ, but lots of people heard them said. It's public. So what John was about was a process that leads to us thousands of years later, being those from among the all mankind who rejoice in God's salvation. It's public. It's historic. It's big. Many of these people in chapter 3 had the right to insist on the way being made straight for them. But the real Lord was in the desert conquering hearts, not away from the public gaze, in which case it would be irrelevant and marginal, 
but actually as a direct challenge to them when they came back from the desert. The truth is this, from the desert, the least expected place, comes the news that will overthrow the public realm. So after we've had today, and whatever God will have been for you today, perhaps the baptism, perhaps something else, then let's go back to our desks and to our machines and to our classrooms and to our family dinner tables and remember that God is in charge of the public, overthrowing in time what there is of the public that we see now, the Tiberiuses and the Pilots and the Herods. The claim of the ancient church, like ours, began in baptism with the very personal, I turn to Christ. But like us, they also said their ancient creed, from which the personal was utterly banished because it was a public claim. It was the most public and simple and challenging statement they could make. When the lordly Caesar was Tiberius, they responded, the Lord is Jesus. For Oliver, it begins here, and it will not end until the Lord Jesus returns. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you, each one of us, for our own baptism and for that powerful mix of the utterly personal and the astoundingly public. We are often those who recognize that the public realm cannot carry the burden of the spiritual. Please deliver us also from the other end of that challenge, that we are so spiritual and private that we do not turn back to the public world with the commitment and the declaration that Christ is Lord. And as we do prepare for mission in seasons to come, and as we make ourselves ready for Easter and Christmas, and even for tomorrow, Give us that conviction that those who have said, I turn to Christ in our hearts today will be those who turn to the world tomorrow to remind it that power belongs not to Tiberius or Pilate or Herod, but to Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. 